Let's look at this together. I invite you to stand Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, beginning here with verse 1. This is Jesus, our Lord, speaking, and these are the words he says. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. As I've said, uh, this passage that we've just read is right smack dab in the middle of Jesus' sermon on the mount. In fact, uh, the phrase I want to focus on this morning is perhaps one of the most quoted scriptures, uh, passages in scripture. In fact, it's also probably one of the most abused and misunderstood. But Jesus' listeners, I think, would have been surprised to hear the master say, do not judge or you too will be judged. This is one of those places where I think that, in fact, the the King James Version has the right edge to it when it reads, Thou shalt not judge. Now, it's a funny thing to think about it, how judgmental, how sneaky judgmentalism is. You can actually start to feel judgmental people when you're saying, Thou shalt not judge. It's kind of fun to point your finger and remind them of this and, and almost... And realizing it, enter into judgment yourself. So I, I realize we need to be a little bit careful this morning. We need to tread gently. Now, notice here that Jesus doesn't say, you know, try to ma- not make a habit of judging. Don't judge somebody unless they really, really have it coming. Then, of course, you can do it. Now, what Jesus does here is very clearly identify that in his kingdom, there is a zero-tolerance policy of a judgmental In fact, Jesus actually got in trouble for his refusal to be judgmental toward people who everybody else, especially religious leaders, judged. For instance, in Luke chapter 15, verse 2, the Bible says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can just hear the contempt. Where people expected Jesus to give judgment and condemnation, they, they thought that was the moral thing to do. Jesus instead brought a sense of welcome and acceptance. In fact, if you think about the list of people that Jesus extended a non-judgmental acceptance toward, it's stunning. You've got ethnic rejects, pagans, Samaritans, traitors to Israel, Roman soldiers, the sexually scandalous, the corrupt tax collector, the unclean, untouched leper. Those are just to name a few. If you think about it and you read your scripture, you realize the only people condemned, interestingly enough, were religious leaders who condemned other people in the name of God. One time a a Pharisee, in fact, was having Jesus over for dinner. I'm going to tell you, it didn't go well. 
And I'm going to use the, uh, the, the uh, message uh, version here because it is so colorful. But this is what it says in Luke 11 during that dinner. It says, but the master said to him, I know you Pharisees burnish the surface of your cups and plates so they sparkle in the sun. But I also know inside you are maggoty with greed and secret evil. Stupid Pharisees, I've had it with you. You're hopeless. You Pharisees, you frauds, you're like unmarked graves. People walk all over that nice grassy surface, never suspecting the rot and corruption that is six feet under. Now, get this, it goes on. One of the religious leaders spoke up, teacher, do you not realize that in saying these things you're insulting us? (laughs) And Jesus said, yes, and I can be more explicit. You're hopeless, you religious scholars. You load people down with rules and regulations, nearly breaking their backs, but never lift a finger to help. Pass the rolls, please. Can, can you imagine that happening? And you think, wow, wow. Jesus was incredibly non judgmental with sinners of every kind, except for this one exception people who judged others. Thou shalt not judge. I want you to think about that, but, but if you do, you begin to realize, well, wait a second, that makes total sense. Because it flows out of the very purpose that Jesus himself said he came. We're told, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In fact, Jesus is so opposed to condemnation that we're told we read this passage last Sunday. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that. No condemnation. How how much condemnation is that? Is that a trace? Is that a little? There is now no condemnation condemnation. Therefore, the implication is, if you, if you extend this out, my friends, is that the church, the fellowship that is founded by Jesus Christ and empowered by his spirit, should in a very real sense be the least judgmental place on earth. John Ortberg wrote these words. He said, Christians, followers of Jesus, must be the least judgmental people on the planet based on the life and the teachings of Jesus. If Christians are known for anything, if the church has a reputation for anything at all, it has to be this. This place is a radically inclusive, non-judgmental, grace-offering, soul-healing, fear-melting, misfit-embracing community of irrational acceptance. Now, 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 hear that. Think about that for just a moment. He then draws this picture, quote, people have got to say, you know, I have dark secrets. I'd be afraid to tell my therapist this, people at the bar this, my 12-step group this, my best friend or my dog because they might judge me. But I can stand up and say this about myself in the church because I know that that's a place where nobody judges. Wow. 
Do you know what the implication is there? Do you sense the picture? That means if, if you meet a stranger on a bus or an airplane and, and, and they sit down beside you and they begin a discussion, it becomes really evident to you that, yes, they have some problems and they start talking to you and you say, well, well I'm a Christian. Then their response, if you think about it, should be, I am so glad. I am so messed up financially or morally or sexually or relationally or whatever it might be. I am so messed up. I was afraid that I was going to sit next to somebody who might judge me. But now that I know that you're a Christian, I know that I'm sitting next to a person who is a safe space for me. That ought to be what is. Yet if you think about it, what is today? How do you think most non-Christians look at you and I? How do they look at the church this morning? What is the narrative they tell other people about Christians? I don't think this is any grand news. Dave Kinneman did a research on this, and he discovered that the primary characteristic non-Christians associate with Christians is being judgmental. They think we're judgmental. Now, I've heard some Christians who justify that by saying, well, the real problem isn't Christians. It's just that non-Christians don't want to be confronted by hard moral truth. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe that's true. But maybe, isn't it funny that Jesus was the holiest person who anyone who ever met, he is the holiest person who ever walked on the face of this earth, and people, sinners, would just line up to be with Jesus. They didn't feel judged. They felt alive. They felt loved. Now, I want you to think about that in this context, because I don't know what your experience has been in the church I grew up in a church where we talked about holiness and being holy. And yes, I wanted to be holy, and I still do. And we should still talk about being holy. God is clear. He says in his word, be ye holy, for I am holy. But sometimes growing up, I think there was often a distorted view of what holiness meant. Holiness meant often the things I didn't do. For my wife Mary, she grew up in a pastor's home. It meant that she didn't go to movies and she didn't play cards. I remember it was questionable if you played pool. Any of you remember those days? It certainly meant you didn't drink alcohol, although smoking seemed to get a pass for so many, and I, I didn't understand that. I went to a holiness college where... Couldn't wear shorts in certain places and at certain times. You, you couldn't play basketball or tennis on Sunday. In other words, holiness was often about what you didn't do. And I'll make this one other observation. There were certain people who would tell you about their holiness. They would tell you how holy they were. And they were often some of the meanest people I've ever met. I could tell you stories about this, but let it suffice to say, when you were around them, they made you feel small and less than. Ever been around someone like that? In the name of Jesus, I'm feeling small today. Now, 
Compare that then to Jesus. Jesus was the holiest man who ever lived, and sinners stood in line to be around him. One of my favorite movies, and Mary introduced this to me several years ago, is The Princess Bride. You've seen that. You know, that's a great, great film. But one of the, the great lines in that movie is a result of the Sicilian uh, boss, uh, Vizzini, uh, and he completely, uh, or he's often using the word inconceivable, inconceivable as events unfold. Well, at one point, the swordsman, Monteo, finally says to him that great line, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Maybe... Maybe that's what we've done with the word holiness. Maybe it means something different than what we think it means. You see, Jesus loved God perfectly. And he knew how to love people perfectly. The essence of holiness is perfect love. Now, I want to expand on this a little more next week. But when Jesus tells us not to judge, he is telling us to give up condemning people to engineer a situation where we can control them. You see, our job is not to control someone else. We ought to give that up because we've got enough problem of our own, okay? We don't have to control Others. Jesus says, give up that business. Now, let me say this. What Jesus does not mean when he says, thou shalt not judge, he does not mean that we shouldn't have moral discernment and make wise decisions. He does not mean that sin doesn't matter because it takes life and it hurts people. Sin does that. It is devastating. But listen, if you go to a dentist and your dentist checks out your mouth and says, listen, I'm looking at this and I see that your gums are beginning to recede. I see a cavity or two. It looks like that maybe you haven't been flossing or brushing as regularly as you need to. That's the dentist's job. They're making an observation and they're telling you how to live better. The dentist is not condemning you as a person. It's not wrong for me as a pastor to point out this is the way to life and this is the way to death. However, if my dentist were to say, you idiot, I've taken a look at these teeth and I've never seen teeth like this in my life. You've got, I've got better teeth on my comb than, than what you've got going for you. These, these teeth are yellow and corroded and crooked and disgusting and I despise, I have contempt for the way you uh, do your oral hygiene, it should be called low gene or something because this is just awful, then maybe that's not the dentist you ought to have. You ought to get a new one, right? In our families and workplaces, in our church, in our relationships, we've got to discern right from wrong. And yes, we still must train our to hold people responsible and discuss their failures and even assign penalties where that's appropriate without attacking someone's worth and their human dignity. 
Now, also, Jesus, it seems to me, is not saying that in being non-judgmental that you have to be naive or simply gullible. Have you ever gotten a call from someone supposedly from the IRS and they're asking for your Social Security number to ensure your refund? Well, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to make a judgment. You're not supposed to be gullible there. You should be skeptical. We are responsible and called to be discerning and wise. The judging, then, that Jesus forbids means having a spirit of condemnation and rejection. It means this ultimate desire I have to want to feel superior to you. I like believing I am better than you. I get a little tinge of satisfaction knowing that you've done this and I'm better than. I I really don't mind condemnation because it makes me look bigger and you feel smaller. That is detestable to Jesus. Remember the story of the prodigal son? It's later in that story, of course, we we read about the older brother, and boy, is he a portrait of judgmental spirits. Jesus tells us the, the younger son goes off and squanders his inheritance in reckless living. Those are Jesus' words. Then, of course, the young man comes to his senses. He's all out. He comes back home, and his father rejoices. But his older brother, you remember, is ticked off and says to his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Now you get the sense of resentment. You hear the bitterness. And never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, of course, but think about that portrait of judging. He he says to his dad, but when this son of yours, isn't that interesting, not this brother of mine, love always identifies with, judgment always distances from. Love will always identify with, but judgment distances from this son of yours. But also in this story, we see that Jesus never said anything about prostitutes. The the older brother just kind of made that up. And, And here's what's going on, it seems to me. Here's the older brother's mindset. I'm afraid that I've really missed out. I'm afraid that the really good life is just about having as much sex as you can get with as many people as you can. Uh, That it really is about drinking as much alcohol and partying as much as I can. Because that's what I would do if I could. But I can't because I'm such a good boy stuck here on daddy's farm. So if he gets to go out and have all the fun and gets to come home and be with the father too, well, that's just not fair. And so sometimes as Christians, listen, we do this. We pretend that we are above fleshly desires. We are above all thinking about those pleasures of this world. 
when the reality is we are afraid that we're missing out. Because let's face it, people, sin can be fun. At least for a season, right? Craig Greshel, a pastor, put it like this. He said, if sin isn't fun, you're not doing it right. <laughs> That's not in the Bible, but I think he's onto something there. And a lot of times people get self-righteous and judgmental because deep down inside, if we're honest this morning, we're afraid we're missing out on the fun, on the good stuff, on real life. We're the good people on the farm, but we don't like it very much. And so we judge because it just kind of makes us feel better, feel superior. It's the little bit of fun we're allowed to have. So in this area, we need God to help us. We need to ask God to help us. Lord, would you make me an oasis of acceptance and grace? Would you root out that judgmental condemnation spirit? Just think about how you're doing in that area right now. Maybe you ought to start in your, in your home or your workplace, maybe right here in the church. God, help me to replace that judgmental spirit with the spirit of grace. Now, this is so important because you don't, don't, don't miss this. This is what Jesus tells us. He says, thou shalt not judge. Then he says, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. What Jesus is talking about here is what's called the law of reciprocity. In other words, you tend to get what you've given. If you give love, you tend to get love. If you give anger, you tend to get anger. If you get if you give distance, you tend to get distance. If you give sarcasm, you tend to get sarcasm. If you give joy, you tend to give joy. If you tend to give it, you will tend to get it back. Whatever it is you gave out. And then Jesus goes on to say, look at the measure of that. Whatever measure you use, it will be measured to you. I, I brought a, a, a bucket this morning, and then in my pocket here... I have a, well, I thought it was here, a thimble. Yeah, there it is. My poor son, my poor son's back from uh, college this weekend. I went in this morning. Mary, sometimes, because of my snoring, will go into another room, and I forgot that she, typically she'll go into Caleb's room to sleep, and so I will go in there in the morning and say, hi, honey, and, and maybe cuddle or whatever, but uh, when I'm up in the morning, well, I forgot Caleb was there this morning because I... I I didn't know that I didn't know where the thimble was in our house. And so I went in there and I started, it was completely dark and I'm kind of rubbing the leg and I say, hey, pumpkin, uh, do you know where the thimble is? And Caleb wakes up and, and asks, and says, a thimble? Well, uh, you know, he was very confused and, and as I was for a second. So uh, it was good to, good to have him back home, but... Uh, but I got my bucket and I, I got my thimble here. This measure, think about that this morning. How, how do I measure what I give out? 
Do I measure mercy by the bucket or by the thimble? When I look at other people, do I give them measure of grace by the thimbleful or by the bucketful? What Jesus is saying here, that measure is going to be the same as it's given to you. In other words, judge others as you would have others judge you, as you would have God judge you. Listen, when you come to judge me, and you will because I mess up, I will certainly do things that are messed up. I would prefer for you to give me a bucket of mercy. I want you to remember there's a whole story behind my life. I want you to take account of my genes, my background, my parents, my issues, my introvertedness, my family, my marriage, my kids. I want a bucket full of mercy. Do I give mercy by the bucket or by the thimble? When I look at other people, do I remember they have stories They have wounds. They have scars. They had parents like this. They had hurts that went this way. All kinds of things have happened. Do I give mercy by the thimble or do I give it by the bucket? Jesus said, with the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. That's incredible. Think about that. Sometimes the bucket of mercy can change a life. In the book Switch, the Heath brothers tell a classic story about Tom Watson. He was the CEO of IBM back in the 50s and 60s, and one of his executives made a business decision that ended up costing the company $10 million. Now back then, that was a lot of money for any corporation, so he knew that he was toast. So he came into Watson's office with a letter of resignation already prepared and said to Watson, I assume here that uh, you're going to fire me. Well, Watson responded, fire you? Of course not. I just spent $10 million educating you. I can't afford to fire you. Get back to work. Think about Peter after he denied Jesus three times. Peter went to Jesus after the crucifixion and the resurrection. I imagine it was something like that. Peter saying, listen, I assume we're here and you're going to fire me. And what did Jesus say? Fire you. I just died for you. I'm in the resurrection business. I'm in the redemption business. I'm not done with you yet. Feed my sheep. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Now, if your boss says to you this week, your work is not quite up to snuff, it's not satisfactory, I don't think it's probably a good thing to say, You may condemn my work, but the Bible says there is no condemnation. (laughs) I repudiate your condemnation. Don't say that. In this world, we are going to have to receive reviews and critiques and criticism, always with humility. 
But what we don't have to receive is condemnation. We don't even have to receive it from ourselves. We can, through the power of God's Spirit, be a community of love. We offer love, grace, acceptance. We can do that. You can decide to do that by the bucket full or the thimble full. It's your choice. But you can offer that to your friends, to your enemies, to your parents, to your children, to your spouse, to your ex-spouse, to those who serve you, to those you serve. And I'm going to tell you, if you learn to do it by the bucketful of grace and mercy, I promise you this, that's a good life. That's a life worth living. That's a life of peace and joy and hope and utter fulfillment. That's the life that God wants to give you. Lord, help us to see clearly this morning. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to see others as you see them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want us to pause for a moment and live in that wonderful reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We marvel at that promise. We are sustained by that amazing grace. Lord, this morning the question is, am I in Christ Jesus? And I invite anyone who has never turned their life over to Jesus Christ as their Savior to, to say yes to that gift of salvation. To be outside of Christ is to be condemned already, but to know Christ is to be given life eternal. And if you've never turned your life over to him and asked him to forgive your sin and to free you from judgment and condemnation, would you have the wisdom this morning to accept his grace through the power of the cross, through the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Listen, friend, you can do that right now. You can say, yes, Lord, I want to be in Christ. I want to accept your free gift. Lord, your grace and mercy, new every morning by the bucket full. And you can turn your life over to him right now. And God, I pray for those of us who are found in Christ, that all of us would choose to live in the radical freedom from condemnation, that, Lord, we would learn to love as you loved. That others would be attracted to us and our church because we are a radically different community of safe space, a place of grace and mercy. And yes, Lord, that means messiness and difficulty and frustration to be sure, but it also means life and wholeness and holiness. And so, Father, we pray humbly that you would make us conduits of blessing rather than judges and condemners. And to all who are around us, Lord, who are in our lives, to all whose paths we cross, may they find the radical acceptance and love that flows through the person and spirit of Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to you. We need you. We need your grace. I need your grace today. Pour it out in me and help me to pour it out in others. For others, Lord, I pray. I pray in the name of Jesus, my Savior. Amen.
and amen.